This is the Tribal Malfunctions Podcast with your host, Chang Terhune. Tribal Malfunctions is a cyberpunk novel set in Boston approximately 100 years from now, give or take, in the year 2119. This is episode three. Hope you've been uh, enjoying so far what you've heard. I've enjoyed putting it together for you. We are up to episode three now, so if you're just tuning in, I strongly recommend you catch yourself up to speed and uh, so you're all up to date on the comings and goings and events portrayed herein in the novel. So, uh, well, tell you what, I'll give you a few seconds while I go run and get myself some more coffee and uh, you go ahead and uh, catch up on the last two episodes. It's only about an hour. I'll wait right here. Okay, I think you're all done. You'll probably be all set for now. So uh, we'll go ahead and get kicking into chapter three. As a reminder, folks, there is a colorful language in this. So uh, unless your children are longshoremen or U.S. Army drill sergeants, you may not want to listen to it around them unless you are aiming to raise them in an environment of colorful language. So without further ado, let's resume the story of Tribal Malfunctions. Travelogue 2, Wonski. July 3rd, 2073. Boston Globe Online. Congress debates Eye in the Sky funding. Tempers raged and voices raised in the debate over whether or not to expand funding for the nation's optical surveillance network, One Eye, One Sky, or Onesky, as it's become popularly known. Republicans want all funding cut, holding firm to their platform of less government involvement and personal rights, while Democrats want more funding for the controversial system of cameras and computers monitoring 55% of the nation's cities. Libertarian Democrats want a lessening of its restrictions with greater oversight in how it's used. Since its creation in the mid-21st century, Onski has proven to be effective, insightful, and controversial. In the first year after its creation, existing networks of cameras in cities across the U.S. were linked together and connected via high-speed data networks to a central computer system at FBI headquarters. But Wonski failed to put a dent in crime or terrorist attacks. Critics called it a failure and demanded its immediate dismantling. In the following four years after its inception, however, Wonski was used to put down a number of terrorist plots against the U.S. government, the Canadian embassy, and the attempted bombing of the Atlanta entrance to the East Coast Wormway. Senator Mark Holbein, Liberal Democrat, Maine, led an hour-long tirade against the Wonski network, calling it the worst realization of our founding fathers' worst fears. Holbein, a longtime critic of the network, said, A hundred years ago, people were filmed on average a hundred times a day across surveillance cameras in public spaces and businesses. Now it's ten times that, at least. Where does it end? Will it ever end? Holbein made these remarks at a Senate hearing. Tribal Malfunctions, Chapter 3. Gonna Get What's Mine. 
Wednesday morning brought deep, knifing cold that leached into the garage. Despite closed doors and infrared heaters turned up to full, it tugged at the edges of the office despite the heaters blazing down from the ceiling like hell's own braziers. Is it too soon to go to the islands? he asked Minea. Ha! she said, not even glancing up from the deck. Not until January, and it's not even December yet, hun. Can't wait to see you in that bikini, though. And out of it, too. You wish, she said, smiling nonetheless. Please, said Wendell, standing in the doorway, not in front of the kids. Jesus, Wendell, said Aris. What's up? Wendell jerked a thumb behind him. A couple of guys at the front door, asking if they can talk with the owner or office manager. Thought you might want to check them out. Aris glanced at the security cameras. Holy Roller was a safe, secure place in a rough neighborhood one didn't want to linger in after dark. Every so often, someone tried to boost a hauler or scrubs or rhino addicts tried to get in, thinking all the business Holy Roller did meant treasure had to be stashed away inside somewhere. On screens stood two men at the doorway, their shaved heads clean but for dark tattoos snaking around their necks. Black shades hid their eyes. Their simple overcoats bulged ominously around the armpits. Think they want trouble, babe? Manea asked him, coming up behind. Want to charge the doormat just in case? Sure, said Aris. Wendell, you... You think they mean business? Wendell asked. No idea, said Aris. Outside the office, a wave of sound struck him as extra tinny. His tension rose in his stomach. He took the extra steps, two at a time, and wound around to the steel-reinforced door, then flicked a switch, arming the doormat. He slid open a small, rectangular door at eye level, and took in the men standing three feet before him, noting their bare hands and thick fingers in the cold air. He labeled the first one Bulk, and Dump the second. Help you? he asked, looking into Bulk's black shades. Bulk stood slightly forward of the other guy, but both stood squarely on the welcome mat. Yeah, uh, hi. Good morning, sir, said the man. We got a call from here yesterday uh, ago uh, about a damaged hauler. Aris couldn't speck their ethnicity with the glasses obscuring their eyes. The dark shadow on their face could have made them descendants of the Caucasus as much as the Gobi. Bulk's accent was 100% New York, though. Aris felt his palms begin to sweat even more cold. Oh yeah? He said, using dense as a first line of defense. Bulk smiled, revealing orderly white teeth. Uh, we're from Yukiko in New York? Aris let the accented words roll around in his mind. Yukiko and New York. As his doubts were immediately confirmed. No human had driven an auto-hauler in at least 75 years. Companies did remote retrievals, if anything. A drone tow would swing by, swallowing up a hauler, then carry it off into the wormway back to its origin. Hell, the last time he'd seen a human driving a tow might have been when he started out at Holy Roller 19 years before. And even that was delivering it to a small junkyard run by some scabby Swedes. You came here, he said watching his breath cloud in the bitter outside air. To pick it up? Oh, that's right, sir, said Bulk, smiling again. Save you the hassle. The hassle, Aris repeated in his head. From duh to duh. 
Did they think he was going to be an easy dupe? Yeah, okay, said Aras, leaning on the doorframe, his fingers hovering over the switch. Oh, okay, okay, so let me ask you this. You got a 5955 double drop rec sheet? Despite his hidden eyes, he saw Bulk's face go blank. No? Of course not. Okay, then your home office can fax one in. Uh, sure, Bulk said. But, uh, so, so how are you going to get it out of here? He asked them. He didn't see a car, so clearly they took a train or suborbital jet from NYC, then cabbed it or took the T to Holy Roller. You got a tow truck somewhere? Uh, no, said Bulk. We're just going to pick it up and get it home ourselves. Dump nodded from behind Bulk. Huh. Uh, okay, Aris said, smiling. Bulk smiled back uncertainly. That's funny, because not only has no one driven an auto hauler since they made them, but they don't even have cockpits, let alone steering wheels. Bulk wavered, mouth open. Furthermore, that thing needs a new Millennium 5-2 claybinator before it'll even move, said Aris. Bulk and Dump's brows both furrowed towards implosion. And even though I ordered it Monday, it ain't gonna be in until Friday, tops. Uh, can't you just, uh, make one of those Molybium 5-2 thingies? Bulk's short-term memory was clearly hampered. Oh, you're a mechanic now? No, genius. I can't just make a Millennium 5-2 Klebenator, he said. Gotta order it. From Free Canada, no less. So it's gotta go through customs. Then if you're lucky, it ought to be in on Friday, but I'd head home and come back Monday. Better yet, just let me do my job, have a mechanic fix it, and send it back to you like I do with every other fucking auto hauler that we service. Bulk raised a brow and pursed his lips. A passing police cruiser rolled up behind them, hovering at the curb. It slowed to a stop, and the tinted window rolled down, revealing a thin brown face with sharp features, smiling from within the armored cabin. R.S. bristled for a second, then relaxed after making eye contact with the driver. "'Hey, Kosal, he shouted. "'How you doing, Mr. Ray?' asked the officer. "'Good. You?' "'Living the dream, man,' said Officer Kosal. "'Everything good?' "'Cold as shit and busy as hell,' answered Aris. "'Typical, you know.' "'Okay, then. Catch you later.' The cruiser lifted off into the air, then floated southeast. Aris looked back at the men before him. The cruiser seemed to give them pause. "'Like I said,' Aris told Bulk. "'Monday, at the earliest. "'Wouldn't bother coming back or calling before then.' We'll call you. Better yet, we'll send it back in better shape than it arrived here. But, look, busy day, fellas, said Aras. Can't stay chatting it up like a couple scrubs on the line. It's cold out. The men were stumped, poised to get what they came for by violence, but swayed by Aras' technobabble and the appearance of Officer Kosal. Have a safe trip home. Aras slid the peephole shut, but kept his finger over the switch. The red light above it went green, indicating the pressure-sensitive welcome mat, wired to deliver 10,000 volts to whoever stood on the three-by-five-foot surface. No longer had two heavy boys masquerading in civilian gear upon it. Aris turned to Wendell behind him, cradling a sawed-off shotgun in his arms. His eyes were bright and alert, jaw set hard. They're gone, said Aris, walking past him. Keeping the doormat armed for the day, though...
Gotcha, said Wendell, stowing the shotgun away on a high shelf under some rags. Haven't heard you use the Millennium bit in a while. <laughs> no one been that stupid in a while, said Aris. They stood looking back at the bays. That Yuki Core hauler still in the yard? Far as I know, we were waiting for them to... Yeah, I know. Just didn't expect a house call. Aris ran a hand through his black hair. Keep the fence live for a few days. 24-7? Oh, hell yeah. Tell everybody there was a break-in nearby, said Aris. Wendell went off nodding while Aris went back to the office. What was that all about? asked Minea. Couple of hoods, said Aris, sitting back down at his desk. Just goons. I can see that. What did they want, Aris? Something that ain't theirs? We got a problem, she asked. When Aris didn't immediately answer, Minea eyed him for a second before shrugging, then returning her focus to the screen before her. Aris sat staring at his screen, brooding over the incident. It wasn't uncommon for someone to try a shakedown at Holy Roller. Officer Casal was a friend and kept an eye on them, since the area was dead except for a few ratty houses and scrubs or attics looking for quick steals to cop a fix. But those two were dumber than average and clearly short-term hires. Aris knew from experience that heavy boys never went out of town unless they were trying to move up the ladder, prove their worth. Bulk and Dump were clearly New York, no-tones all the way to their cores. He sat stewing until Minea nudged him to get up and take her to lunch. After lunch, he bundled up in a parka, grabbed a diagnostic kit, and went into the yard. It was just as well to get out of the office and away from Minea for a bit. Their lunch was less than romantic. So few of them were when they were working and more of a therapy session. Except he wasn't talking, and she wouldn't stop. If it wasn't something about the shop, it was something about their kids, or her sisters, or her mother. She finally trickled down to a few ten-word sentences before resorting to a silent scowl across the table at him. When he paid, she left without waiting for him. Back at the office, she let him have it with both barrels after she closed the door. I don't know what your problem is, she said, dropping her bag into the chair with the force of a corpse dropping. But you've been extra sulky this morning, and it's no fun to be around. Aris didn't respond. Minea accepted his mood swings, but today this was unbearable even for her. He stood over his desk, coat slung over one arm while pushing papers around without direction or purpose. Did you hear me? she asked. Yeah, he said. You know, it's like... I don't know. You're extra distracted. What? He asked, reverie temporarily shaken. Yep, more distracted than usual and restless. Minea growled, then returned to her work, sliding her bag from the chair to sit. Aris stood at his desk for five minutes of pushing papers around before slipping his coat back on. Gotta go check something in the yard. Minea said nothing. After walking the length of the garage, he stepped through a smaller door set in the larger ones for incoming and outgoing haulers. The cold hit him like a slap in the face with a studded belt. He wrapped the parka tighter, thinking of the puffy, warm coat he used to wear, and made his way out into the yard. The original Mr. A, the old man, may he rest in peace, 
had half an acre to store the junked haulers and what few cars he worked on. Aras took over the rest of the decrepit block and the next one as well. The city, desperate to do something with the empty land and ramshackle homes, let him have it for a few dollars. Now rusted hulks, the broken shells of auto haulers, and their requisite parts filled two city blocks. An electrified fence 15 feet high, topped with monofilament spikes, kept out anyone stupid enough to try to hotwire a hauler or steal tools. It wasn't uncommon to see a fragment of clothing hanging from a sharp spike or the odd black char mark on the fence posts every so often. Aris took a right down an alley behind the building, a four-story stack of frames under blue tarps snapping in the wind to his left. The shining sun did little to stem the cold, an early snap that put everyone on edge despite the approaching holidays. After passing two rows of unclaimed and salvaged haulers, stacked three deep, he came to the Yukikor hauler. If Choi hadn't put it deep within the stacks, Aris would have moved it. He'd have to remember to thank Choi for that. Heavy boys, he said aloud, thinking of the two men at his door earlier. Only time a heavy boy would come out in broad daylight, dressed as a civilian, was for mischief or court. And they usually, at least in Boston, had the sense to dress all the way down, leave their moke shades at home, and cover up their tattoos. He thought of the old rivalries, blaming this on New York's arrogance, but painful memories surged, proving the opposite was the truth. So why the hell were those dopes up here looking for this thing, he muttered, looking up at the hauler. The underside was black and silver, while its upper half was a naval gray, with its license tags bolted up front right under the bump of its antenna. Yuki Corps 9421 was stenciled in semi-opaque letters across the side. Not like anyone saw those down in the wormway. Everything was dark down there, where the haulers navigated by LADAR and SONAR while clinging to the security of the maglev tracks. Aris crouched, then crab-walked under the hauler between the two struts it sat on. Choi did a good job of closing it up. Half the time, the new guys left shit half done or not at all. Despite appearances, the yard wasn't a disorganized pile of wrecks thrown into the nearest available space and piled atop one another. Aris could find his way around practically blindfolded. If someone wanted to see disorganization, they should look at Manea's desk. He realized he'd better get flowers for her tonight, or he'd be sleeping in a cold bed or on the couch. He noticed some graffiti he'd missed earlier when checking the hauler out with Choi. Graffiti on haulers wasn't uncommon. He'd tagged plenty of them in his teens and saw numerous haulers come in with simple scratching and ornate murals painted on their sides. It was easiest to do it in hauler yards or when they were stopped during surface transit. No one could get into the wormway tunnels to do it as they'd need breathing gear and a thermal suit to survive the vacuum and freezing cold. But this was a strange, simple glyph. A rectangle with a small pipe drawn on the top left side. He'd never seen anything like it, and had long ago forgotten most of the local gang codes, not to mention his own crew's set of signifiers and notchings. Kids today, he said, then laughed. 
Sounding more and more like the old man, he thought to himself. Aras undid the hauler's bottom plate and shined his torch up inside it. Choi had taken care to seal up the brain pan in gold tape, but Aras knew it'd take a full clean room repair to get it back to normal. A thorough check with the diagnostic kit plugged into the access socket told him there was nothing unusual. It was a standard Mitsubishi Devarahi Ahimsa 220 auto hauler. Nothing disturbed inside except for the obvious. The original ticket said something about a displaced air spring and a helium refrigeration unit failure, which Choi replaced, which still didn't account for the broken shield on its CPU. He thought of the two men standing at the doorstep, their coats bulging, their bodies clad in unfamiliar garb. They certainly weren't able to get into the tight space and mess with the CPU. For a split second, he considered popping the hauler's cargo bay open and checking it out. But the exorbitant fine that came along with it, and possible jail time, deterred him. Aris closed the hauler's panel up with cold fingers and went inside. On the way back to the office, he stopped and thanked Choi for being so thorough with the hauler. You bet, Mr. A, he said, bowing in his seat before turning back to his screen. Minea barely acknowledged him as he came in, and sat back down. He knew it'd have to be a pretty big bouquet to break the ice that formed around her. The phone rang loud, waking Aris from a dream in which he was selecting a new suit made from the flat black Sumatran nano weave he coveted but could never afford. As he reached out to touch the iridescent black cords, a jarring ringtone broke the weave apart before him. The hell? he heard Minea say in her sleep. He fumbled at the bedside for the phone. Hello, he said. This is North American Police Security Assistance calling, said an automated female voice. There has been a break-in attempt at 91 Marshall Street, local Somerville, and Greater Boston Police have been notified and are on the scene. Goodbye. The line went dead. Aris dropped the phone on the table. What was that? said Minea, snaking an arm around his chest. Trouble at the shop, he said. Gotta go down. What trouble? she asked, her breath still sweet despite the hour of the morning. Break in or something. Go back to sleep. I'll see you down there, he said, seeing the flowers by her bedside. Too bad, she said, slipping away and rolling over. I was going to wake you with something special. Maybe for lunch, she said, nipping at an exposed buttock. Ow, she said. Go away. She was asleep before he had his pants buckled. Twenty minutes later, he paid the drone cab and got out behind a police cruiser. Three other cops were there as well as a welcome wagon. Casal turned and smiled at him, head bare in the cold. He wore critical response armor, the kind Aris and his friends used to call party armor back in the day. Casal offered Aris a coffee like the one he held, steaming in his hand, wrist and elbow wheezing slightly with the sounds of tiny servos assisting the exoskeleton's movements. "'Sorry to wake you, Mr. Ray,' he said. "'Sorry you're still working,' said Aris. Casal shrugged the motors sounding as if they'd sneezed inside his suit. Eh, got a mortgage to pay. I hear that. Casal led Aras to a corner of the yard where the exterior fence swung around the block. 
two bright blue tarps marked SPD slash GBPD in white letters were draped over a pair of bulky heaps. Casal nodded at the CIS tech robot, and it lifted the corner, revealing the scorched remains of the two men who'd been by earlier in the day inquiring about the hauler. You ask me? They deserved it, said Casal. Dumb enough to try getting in there. They earned the frang they got. The men's pale faces showed they died in considerable pain. Burn marks scarred their black coats. Did they get in? asked Aris. Ha! Not even close. Tried insulated shears, but one of them must have forgotten basic electricity 101. Zap! Both dead. No shit. Why'd they try anyway? What would they want? Only kind dumb enough to try this is usually scrubs or rhino heads. These guys look pretty husky for addicts. You got me, Aris said. Grateful Casal didn't recognize them from earlier in the day. Dumb fucks is all. Yeah, right. Funny thing is, heavy boys are usually smarter than this. Oh yeah? Uh, these are heavy boys? said Aris, his throat tightening as he tried to make nonchalant with the coffee. Even with the band, they're still around? Oh yeah, sure, said Casal. See those tattoos? The shoes and shades? Heavy boys. Usually they know their way around tech and security. Guess these dupes were new recruits. Poor saps, said Aris. Heavy boys, huh? Yeah, well, whatever. A couple less deadbeats I don't have to roll off a corner with a tank. He sipped at his coffee, then nodded at the white and blue robots looming over the bodies. A harsh squawk erupted from the earpiece drooping around Casal's neck. He tucked it into his ear, then winced as a harsh voice rattled at him. Aris couldn't make it out, but knew the gruff impatience of an overloaded superior when he heard it. With a closing squawk, Casal flicked the earpiece out and almost imperceptibly shook his head in annoyance. The boss trying to crawl up your ass? asked Aris. Something like that, said Casal. He looked at the other officer, then nodded Aris over to the far side of the cruiser, just outside the perimeter of its flood lamps. Aris followed, a little nervous ice forming in his belly. Look, man, Casal said, keeping his eyes on the crime scene robots. I know these were the two guys from earlier today. Got anything you want to tell me? What do you mean? asked Aris. I've known you for a while, Mr. Ray, said Casal. I knew the old man, too. Scrubs are one thing, but when you get some tourists showing up this far away from Faneuil Hall, you know they're not lost. Tourists, said Aris. He tried out the dumb routine. <laughs> That's funny. These guys aren't, said Casal. These guys are bad news. If they're walking around in broad daylight with minimal cover, gangbang or no, they're not out here for no reason. Look, said Aris, leaning on the cruiser. It beeped angrily at him and he startled, spilling his coffee. It's the trucking business, right? The shady people have been involved in it since someone slung a sack on the back of a fucking horse. You know how many times I get shitheads rolling up here asking for their hauler when their checks bounce? You saw the first three of that day alone. Seriously? asked Casal. They figure I'm going to shake and shit, then hand it over, said Aris, nodding. The problem with these goons is they didn't know enough to fucking do the job. Probably overheard some captain down in NYC complain about his hauler being stuck up here and thought they'd earn points with the boss by grabbing it. NYC said Casal, shaking his head. Got enough problems with them already. How do you mean? asked Aris. 
Never mind, Casal replied as he sipped slowly at his coffee, then nodded once. If you say they're just some random dupes, then there's not much else I can say. Random dupes is right, said Aris. They just did the gene pool a huge favor. <laughs> Guess so. Look, the CSI unit's going to do some work here, then we'll be out of your hair, okay? Thanks, Casal. Don't mention it, he said. Just your friendly neighborhood cop on the beat. Aris walked to the gate's edge and watched the machines work for a minute under the police light's glare before going inside the garage. He tidied up the office while throwing an occasional glance back outside. The police units were gone by dawn's first light. Around 8 a.m., an automated call came from Yukikor, informing him they'd recall the hauler. Yukikor came through with an automated payment and a notice that a tow would arrive later in the day to pick it up. Aris thought about holding on to it and making up an excuse, then let it go in his own time. But when the tow arrived, he watched Choi guide it into the tow truck's sleek cylinder. The end sealed up around it, and Aris watched it roll out of the yard, then take a left towards the nearest wormway on ramp, and it was gone. Good riddance, thought Aris. That looks to be it for Chapter 3 of Tribal Malfunctions in the wild and woolly world of Boston in the 22nd, 22nd century. Kind of hard for an old guy like me to get my head around the fact that I'm living in the 21st century. I thought that was going to be the future, but it's weird because apparently the future is now. I do hope you're enjoying this. I'm having a lot of fun putting it together. As I mentioned in the, uh, the blog posts uh, for this, the music is by me, uh, Cathode Ray Tube, and you can get that at um, uh, Bandcamp URL is uh, therealcathoderaytube.bandcamp.com. Again, that's therealcathoderaytube.bandcamp.com. I do have some music I'm using also, um, since it's mine, uh, from componentrecordings.bandcamp.com. That's from the albums I've released on the very awesome component recordings label. Well, I really hope you are digging this. Um, it's a great fun. Let me know what you think. Um, comment on the uh, website. I'd like you to do that. Love you to do that. Or comment on Facebook. Okay. Um, next week's chapter three. Uh, chapter four. Ooh, getting ahead of myself. It's exciting because it's the future. Peace. Namaste. Namaste.